All right. Again, the text is uh, Philippians. It's chapter two in the Pew Bible, I believe, somewhere around page 980, 981. Somewhere in there, we're still in uh, chapter two of Paul's letter to a church that he loves uh, greatly, that he knows, that he wishes he could be with. Of course, he cannot uh, because he is in prison unjustly. He is suffering uh, and uh, and he's he's locked up. He can't visit. He, he can write to them. He uh, you know, sends word about how he's doing, and he even amidst those circumstances, which is uh, far uh, worse than what we could even imagine, uh, especially in this country, uh, his imprisonment would have in, uh, involved a great deal of uh, suffering, and yet he is writing as a man who has uh, joy. And that's not fake; it's real, and he's no, uh, you know, he's not the least bit shy about how and where that joy originates from. Um, he says that his joy is in Christ. And, and back in chapter 1, if you'll remember, he even kind of gave us an anthem, so to speak, uh, for his, his life. Regardless of his circumstances, he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that sounds strange to our ears. It, it naturally would, especially seeing as how Paul was you know, on death row awaiting a, a sentence which may involve death, which for him was no problem because ultimately that would mean that he would be with the greatest gift and gain of life, and that is Christ. So whether he's to live or to die, he says, is Christ, and that is gain, and that is good. What about for you? Uh, For me to live is blank. Now, I'm not saying what you would say. I'm saying what would your life say? What would your priorities say? What would your schedule say, your checkbook say? For me to live is what? Fill in the blank. To accomplish things, to uh, accumulate things. For me to live is to accomplish my bucket list. Uh, For me to live is to accumulate uh, things, uh, to accumulate, uh, you know, experiences or wealth or fame or a life of leisure. I want to accumulate those things. Uh, The few reality TV shows that I watch, you would uh, you would be led to believe that for me to live is food. Uh, Many of those shows, that's the resounding bottom. By the way, speaking of food, a little nutritional advice. Uh, this is free. It's not what you came for, but uh, here it is. Uh, just just a little advice I read this week. Did you know that by replacing your potato chips, replacing your potato chips with grapefruit as a snack, you can lose 90% of the joy you have left in your life. <laughs> true, true, especially if they're salt and vinegar potato chips. For me to live is what? Eating, traveling. Some of you just walked in and I said salt and vinegar potato chips. I don't, yeah, I'm sure your mind's in a different place now. Uh, for me to live is what? For me to live is traveling, gardening, sports, art, accomplishments, my children's accomplishments. For me to live is my career, my financial success. For me to live is music or a romantic relationship. What governs and guides your joy and my joy? Remember the resounding theme. We've talked about this already. Do not locate, do not find your joy in something that you can lose. Think about that. Don't don't locate, don't fix your joy, anchor it in something that you can lose. For me to live is blank. Whatever that is, it is in essence to say as long as I have this, my health, my spouse, my home, my security, I have everything that I need. Which is to say, what is your treasure? I read this a number of weeks ago. I just remind you again, it's a one verse, one parable that Jesus said. Matthew 13, it's just been ringing in my head. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. 
Then he knows it's there in the field. He knows the treasure's there. Maybe no one else knows. Then he goes and sells everything. But it doesn't just say he went and sold everything. It says in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. What this morning in your life is your treasure? What it is? What is it that you live for, that you prioritize things for, that you wait for, that you fight for, that you pray for? What will you look like a fool for? What would you trade for of lesser value? For me to live is Christ. Is that what you would say? I mean, would you say that what is Christ to you? Is he something? Is he is he nothing? Uh, is, Is he much to you? Is he everything to you? Is the prospect of meeting Jesus someday, maybe today, through one means or another, I pray it's because he returns, but for you to meet Christ, is that a wonderful prospect? Is that, is that a good news thing? Or is it, you know, no, no, Jesus, you're cool, you're fine and all, but after I'm done finding all the, the comfort and fulfilling all the ambitions that I envisioned and all that's dried up for me at the end of life, then give me Jesus. If that's your motto, if that's your thinking, I'm sorry to say you've been misled and deceived by the great father of lies. Because if you live a life, if we pursue a life that is self-centered, which is only what we do by nature. If you do that, then when, not if, but when you endure suffering, you will inevitably spin off into self-pity. You will not have joy in suffering. You will wallow inevitably. Not so with Paul, of course. Paul is commending to us through his life that in view of the suffering, this is chapter 2, prior to where we get to where our text is today in verse 12, all he's been saying is, look at the person of Jesus. He commends to them that they wouldn't live lives of of selfishness, that they they would consider others, as we were reminded, better than themselves. He wants them to experience as a church, as a community of of friends and, and family, as a church, unity, but that hinges on humility. He's saying that that humility, as crazy as it sounds, is actually a virtue in a society and a culture that thinks otherwise, as we well know. That to find real joy, he was reminding them, we said last week, that to find real joy and real life is in Christ, in union with him. That means, of course, that the way up is the way down. Or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know how to say that right, but you get the point, right? To go down with Christ And humility is to later be exalted, to be lifted up. That's how Jesus was. Jesus, we're told here, is he goes from the highest of places, considering equality with God. He didn't. He he laid that aside. He comes down to the very, 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 very lowest point, which is the point of humiliation, shame, and death, as a criminal. Although he was perfect in obedience to God's law. And then what happens? We said last week it's as if he was catapulted up by God's design and uh, desire to the highest place, to the highest name. That someday, even though many can't see it and wouldn't want to admit it, Jesus will be honored and adored by all. Every knee will bow. Every intelligible creature that's ever lived will, will yield in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why is that? That's important. That's Paul is saying, that's really important, but I'm not just going to wrap it all up there. He's saying not only is all of that important, but it's tremendously relevant. So bear with me, because this is where he says, after all he says this, in writing this letter, inspired of God, he says to them and to us, verse 12, therefore, which is there for a reason, all of which we've just built upon, the humiliation, the, the exaltation of Christ. 
Why don't you stand with me in deference to God's word so that we would see, hopefully, the therefore, what it's there for. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad. And I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. You may, uh, please pray with me, though. Father, right now we look to you. And we ask that uh, you would send your spirit to, to illuminate, uh, that you take uh, your word and it would be, it would be instrumental in, in taking hearts that are hard, maybe, and, and soften them, that you take our minds, which may be distracted, uh, that may be confused, you'd open them. And if our priorities are out of whack, that you would realign them, so to speak. And we would all as a people grow a bit more in humility and faith and dependency upon you. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. The whole experience of, uh, of going through a pandemic has robbed people of a number of things. And, and hopefully for whatever that is for you, uh, it hasn't been that it has robbed uh, your joy or your contentment. I mean, as a pattern speaking, not, not as a moment, but has, hasn't robbed your joy. I know that uh, if you were to ask my kids, uh, they would say as a church, there's, there's something that COVID has robbed us of for two years in a row now. And that's what? The church camping trip. Exactly. I knew someone would say that. The church, the church camping trip. We, we, we haven't been able to do that for two years. And I guarantee the next summer it is going to be awesome. <laughs> it is going to be sweet. Uh, there, there's something uh, to, be, to be desired, and, and, and we all look forward to it. I think all of us do. Some of you are into camping. Many of you are into camping. It's the summertime, right? RVing, camping. Author uh, and uh, PCA pastor Kevin DeYoung has a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. And I love the opening of the book because this is what he writes. He says... My family, he's got a very different background than me, it seems as if. My family wasn't what you would call outdoorsy. We aren't against the outdoors or anything. We often saw it through our windows. Uh, We walked through it, the woods and the wilderness, on the way to the store. But we never once went camping. We didn't even own a tent, an RV, or a fifth wheel. Uh, No one hunted. No one fished. I've I've been largely ignorant of camping my whole life. And I'm okay with that. It's one more thing I don't need to worry about in life. Camping may be great for other people, but I'm content to never talk about it, never think about it, and never do it. Knock yourself out with your cooler. I'm hearing some amens. Knock yourself out. Knock yourself out with your cooler and your collapsible chairs, but camping, he writes, is not for me. And he goes on to say, some of you may get the picture, but you, you, you see, he goes on to say, as it relates to our life as followers of Jesus, we have this, uh, this calling to live as Christ and to be holy. And he says, you know what? I wonder, does your pursuit of holiness, um, you know, somehow, you know, is it like the new camping? 
right? You would say you relate to it like this. It's possible that you look at personal holiness like I look at camping. It's fine for other people. You sort of respect it that some people make their lives harder than it needs to be for a time. Uh, But you get the point. Not really your thing. You didn't grow up with it. You didn't have a family that was into holiness. You didn't have a church that emphasized it. You you know, that's for other people. It's it's an elective. It, It doesn't really matter. Does the pursuit of holiness in your life seem impossible? Or, or maybe it sometimes just seems as if an unnecessary thing. Sure, we'd all like to be better people. And sure, we, would, you know, we wouldn't want to stumble into something really foolish and major and make our families embarrassed and our lives miserable. But by and large, it's not really – I mean we're saved by grace. What's the point? My life seems fine without us. Holiness is not required, is it? But God's word doesn't say that. It doesn't commend that. God makes clear that, uh, that the testimony of Scripture is that we were redeemed from something. We were saved from something and we are saved to something. That we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. That we, we do walk in a new life of holiness. That we are united to Christ by faith. And that we actually are to be shaped and molded and fashioned to be more like Christ in this life. Two themes that I see in these few verses that Paul is commending to them. He calls them to two things. They're listed in the order. Actively pursuing and confidently rejoicing. Actively pursuing, confidently rejoicing. Actively pursuing holiness, the way of wisdom, the way of Uh, The ways of Christ, the will of Christ, until what? Until verse 16, the day of Christ. All of life. I say say the word actively here because much like camping, it involves work. I mean, you go camping, honestly, we go for two nights of camping and you got to pack more stuff than two weeks of vacation. A normal vacation, right? Uh, You know, to visit family or stay in a hotel, you know, you've got (laughs) a lot of work involved. It is work, but it's it's worth He's worth it. We would say that about, some of you might say that about camping. I'm saying of Christ. For us to endeavor to, to work toward holiness, pursuing it actively. I say actively because look at the, look at the, 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 the words here. Look at I me. Mean, even in these small set of verses here, obey, work, do, shine, hold fast. This is not passivity. This is, this is inviting something, commending to us. Of course, he's saying here, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, I did just a, a word here about where that sometimes leads people. And sometimes it actually has people turning introspectively on, on themselves, uh, missing the fact that in the fuller context here, Paul's not talking just about your own. Primarily, the focus is not just your own salvation. He's writing to a church, to a people. And in fact, all the you's and, and uh, all the you and the you's here are translated southern y'all. It, it's plural. It, it's your your as a church as as a people of God, followers together of Christ. You as a community work together for your salvation. Obviously, Paul does have our personal lives in view, but the primary focus is on the corporate. That is in the and that's in the context. That's why he's saying he's he's commending to them things not rivalry or vain conceit in comparing one another. And not, in, not as the text here says in, in grumbling, which is either grumbling to one another or about one another. The context 
is, is about this community. Not in rivalry, not in, not in, not in, in, in vanity. We should be grateful and a humble people, reminding one another with fear and trembling as to say in the awe and in the reverence of who God really is in the splendor of his holiness and his power. I mean, we should live and, and converse, even talking about our, our choices and our, our priorities when we live about the seriousness, right? The, the, the gravity of this calling that we have to work it out, to, to live as as becomes a follower of Christ, as many of you have vowed to do in your membership covenant vows. It's not a joke. And it's not a joke. It, it, it's not a joke. It, it, it spills over. It involves our joy and his glory. Amongst other things. And we're reminding one another that he wants us to be followers together in a world that's not like that. That's self-centered and is extremely prone to grumbling. I mean, it's, it's like the easiest default mechanism, whether you're in the workplace or in social media uh, or at a family reunion. It doesn't matter. I mean, grumbling just surfaces. Uh, it's just it's very easy. It's like the default. You got nothing to talk about. Well, if you're really sweet, you talk about the, uh, the weather. If you're really real, you talk about grumbling, you know, about something. It's easy to walk in. We know this. We are supposed to be not grumbling, the, the text here says, or questioning. In other words, contrasted to the world where it's almost like pride. To be critical is like a virtue, right? We live in the day of, of let's, let's, be, let, let's be critical of anyone and everyone as if it's so commendable that we're going to go and say what everybody else is thinking, but I'm bold enough and brave enough to say. Underneath it, though, is pride, which is a virtue in our in our context. But in contrast to that, we're saying, no, it's humility, because behind the grumbling is saying things like subtly, maybe not so subtly. I deserve better. I we shouldn't have to put up with this. I could go on and on. You know what it sounds like. And whether it's verbally articulated out loud or whether it's internal, grumbling is a form of discontent that dishonors God, who we, we know pretty clearly as we heard read in Exodus 17. I think you did too. He doesn't like that. It's, it's questioning God for them as the people of God to Moses. Did he bring us out here? He just... Through a series of powerful demonstrations, part of the Red Sea delivered you from the hand of Pharaoh out into the wilderness. He wanted you to become holy in the process of bringing you to the promised land. And by the way, he didn't bring you out here to die of thirst. But that's how they talk of, as if God had. He tested them. In the end, grumbling robs our joy. But it also, Paul is saying here, it damages our witness. Because it doesn't distinguish us. Holiness is to be set apart, to be unique. Not in a, not in a condescending, self-righteous kind of way. But in, 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 in a uniqueness. Verse 15, you should pursue this. Look at the text again. That you may be blameless without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. I think this is echoing pretty clearly the prophet Daniel, which Paul would have known very well. The prophet Daniel says of, of, uh, of, a, of a vision of, of days to come. And those who are wise, Daniel 12, 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. 
And those who turn, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You, you, you hear like the good news outreach evangelistic thrust of that. Now back to verse 12, again, you know, to this main you know, driving thing that's in, in view, that we would be working out our salvation in fear and with trembling. We sense the urgency. We sense, we sense with activity the intentionality. How important is it for you? I mean, think about this. How, how important is it to you? Maybe you, you think in terms of you know, plateauing or, or whatever, becoming content. How important is it to you that there would be characteristic of, of our living, not flawlessly, but consistently, that we would be people who are more generous, who are are more concerned with honesty, who are more concerned increasingly with purity, that we are more that we are we're more concerned about being a, a people of humility, that we are more concerned all the more of growing in gentleness and self-control. I think this is maybe a good point for me to clarify. Maybe you wish that I had said it for your sake or others earlier. Just to remind you that our pursuit of holiness is not a work to gain God's favor, grace, or love. Just to make clear, and I want to just drill in on this for a moment. He did not say to work for your salvation. He said to work out our salvation. Our salvation, Paul makes very clear in Romans 4 verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted righteous as righteousness. And then Paul goes on in Galatians 3, or Galatians, three different times to speak of how it is not by works of the law that anyone is saved or justified. Even in the very next chapter, we'll read in chapter 3 of, of, of Philippians that located in Christ, that that's you. He says he's not having a righteousness, righteousness of my own that comes through the law. Which, which leads me to this next thing and this other theme that I see here, which is this confidence in rejoicing. We're, we're a people as followers of Christ who are rejoicing, not grumbling. We're also resting and not trying to earn God's love. Even amidst the, the pursuit of a Christ-like holiness... We're only working out, which is to say we're, 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 we're giving flesh to this. We're fleshing it out. The reality of our union with Christ, knowing the benefits, knowing the humility of Christ in his example, but also the benefits of Christ. He working in us that we are fleshing out the application of what was said earlier in chapter two is in view here. Perhaps an analogy. Maybe this is somewhat helpful. I don't know. I mean, when I when I took when we took marriage vows 18 years ago, we entered into the estate of of, of marriage. And being married being married changes things. It, at least it should. I mean, it changes what you do on Wednesday night. It changes what type of furniture you buy. But being married changes how you relate to other people, especially members of the opposite sex. Being married changes how you spend your time, your money. The, the list goes on, right? 
You, you, make a, you make a shift and you flesh out more and more what it means to be in the covenant relationship of marriage as one. Of course, those first few years, I still was trying to catch up in my thinking, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that does need to. Ch- I, I mean, yeah, I can't keep doing that. Or this is this. I have to take into consideration this. I'm fleshing out, working out the realities of being in a state of marriage. You are children of God if you are in Christ. You were saved from the penalty and the power and someday the presence of sin. So now work that out. Learning what it means. Giving, giving action and, and, and expression to it. Don't hold back. Let it take shape. Bear the fruit that he wants to render of change. We're rejoicing, of course, though, that he is saying that verse 13, it's not you. Let's read it again. For it is, do all of this immediately next, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I entitled the sermon this morning, The Ins and Outs of Children. This has nothing to do with parenting. I, I'm just, and, 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 you know, there's plenty of ups and downs. I'm not talking about ups and downs, but I'm saying as God's children, as followers who have been brought into this family, there are ins and outs, and the ins and outs are God's work. He is working in us. He is working through us. Both at the level, he says here, of the will, both to will and to work. In other words, he's, he's at the very foundational level of motives, but also of behavior. God is working there also. It's not like he started, you pick up. Did you hear that? It's God's work to will and to work. He is the one. This is not synergy. This is not, this is not that at all. God is, not working, God is working in us, not with us. Let me say that again. God is not working. God is working in us, not with us. The testimony is clear of Scripture. We were dead in sin. We were alienated. He has made us alive. He has made us children. What is the testimony of the very opening of this letter? That he, he who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's his. God is at work. You are children adopted. And he has made you to be lights and made me, us, to be lights in the world. We're not generating that. We're not earning that we are reflecting his light that's our calling that's that's our responsibility and yes it involves yes the christian life the gospel calls us to trusting but it didn't say we don't stop there it's trusting and trying and it's a lot better than camping anyway let me close with this let me just say this because this is how he ends up in the last two verses four times over he says it's almost as if he envisions them as, as they offer a sacrifice as a priest would. At the very end, there would be a last libation perhaps poured out. And that's what he views his life. And he says, I, I, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. He says, I want you in those last two verses. He says it in two different word forms. Be glad and rejoice. Be glad and rejoice. He's pounding at home. I want you to rejoice. Because I know that it's so natural for us to think about The only way to rejoice is if you have something good going on. As if rejoicing is only in response to something. 
Does that make sense? It's only in response to, to good and pleasant and sweet circumstances. And that's not the truth. The, the truth is that we can experience and know and to flesh out joy as a choice. And that's why it's an imperative here that he says joy, which is the only true antidote to grumbling. Is, is to rejoice, to, 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 as, a, as, a, as a conscious act, as a will that we are called to do. So I'll, I'll close with this. Psalm 127. I said it earlier with the baptism. I, it, it, was, it was yesterday's reading in community Bible reading. So what do you think about this as the construction zone of your life? Don't fail to recognize this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So we surrender to him. Because he's building. And he loves us. Would you pray with me? Father, you are the almighty one. And your son, he is so worthy. Uh, we want our lives to be more like him. So we pray that Holy Spirit, you would be working to comfort, to counsel. I pray that God, you would prepare us for whatever suffering, individually and as a church, that you have appointed for us on the horizon. Strengthen us, Lord, in our weakness. Prepare us for whatever good works you have. That we might walk in them. I pray that you'd help us to be a good stewards of what you've given us. And resources and time and children and money and gifts. Lord, help us to be mindful and sensitive to the needs of people around us. That we would do good for your glory. And Lord, in the construction zone of our own growth and grace and sanctification. We want to labor and work in response to your good work. To your kindness. Lord, we live in a fractured and confused time. There are many threats and much confusion and anger. I pray you'd be merciful, bring humility and love and peace, that you'd capture it for us first, that we would be a people not grumbling, but content and joyful, pointing people to the great hope that we have. Father, have mercy. Our great hope is in our great King Jesus, and our great hope uh, as a country, as as a community, is for more people to worship you. And so we pray for the churches uh, in our area throughout the land, but in our particular area that preach the gospel. We're trying to make like us disciples of Jesus Christ. So this morning I do pray again for our brothers and sisters at South Shore Baptist and New Hope Chapel and Duxbury Church and First Baptist in Situate and North River Community. First Baptist in Weymouth. There are many others, Lord. We want there to be more, plant more churches, bring more. But to those who are this very day worshiping you, pray you would be with them in their mission, be with their leadership, be with their worship and witness, that together we might point more people to the great hope that is ours in Christ. Thank you, God, for answered prayer. Hear us even now as we pray in Jesus' name, as he taught his disciples.